0: For I have given you an example that you also should do, just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. This is the Word of God. My feet have never won a beauty contest. Some of us are endowed with fabulous flippers. Uh, Not me. My toes are introverts. I mean, they get their energy out of the public eye. Trust me. I, I have flat feet, I, I have absolutely no arch at all whatsoever, um, my second toe is longer than my big toe, I'm sure that's a sign of wisdom, I don't know, <laughs> I've had plantar fasciitis, I've had planters warts, I have orthotics, I, you know, I've got, the, now sit down, don't leave, If, if you, you don't kind of feel you, and, and if this is your first time, please stay. <laughs> but if you don't feel ew, if you don't feel a little ew, then I really don't think we're going to get the heart of what we just read in John chapter 13. Uh, your feet are personal. And we're self-conscious about them, and there's an intimacy and a tenderness to touching someone's feet. And all too often, we read these verses in kind of a sanitized, sentimentalized way. And we often want to locate John chapter 13 in a stained glass chapel. And that's just not going to do. Jesus, as this you know, spiritual pedicurist. Doing that causes us to overlook just how raw and ripe and pungent these verses are. Verse 1 tells us, Now, it was before the feast of the Passover, and then John makes sure that he says he loved his own to the end. So whatever it is we're about to read here in the upcoming verses, we're going to read about what Christian love is all about. And there's nothing sentimentalized to that. It's rugged. These verses say, here's what Jesus means when he uses the word love. And I go back to that, Definition from these verses by Paul David Tripp. Love, the willing self sacrifice for the good of another that does not require reciprocity or the worthiness of the beloved. And Jesus' love here is a uniting, defending, stooping, serving, enduring love. He loved them to the end. And then verse three, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. So whatever happens next, Jesus is doing what he's doing, fully aware of who he is, and what he possesses. He is the exalted son of God possessing all power. He knew where he had come from and he knew where he was going. He was returning to glory through ignominious suffering. So this is not a story about Jesus surrendering power. Please don't use that word Jesus surrendering power or Jesus abdicating power, that's not this. This is about leveraging power. Leveraging power for the flourishing of others. That explains why during supper, Christ got up to do what should have already been done. In that culture, foot washing was as common as brushing your teeth. Uh, People had sandals, roads were dusty, Israel was arid, summer was hot and dry, winter was cold and muddy. You'd enter a home, and the first thing you'd do at the door would be to take off your sandals, take off your shoes. You weren't going to track that into the house. I once preached in, uh, twice preached in Kathmandu, Nepal, and a large church... The moment you get into the doors, everyone, every, there's hundreds, they take off their shoes. You better tie your shoelaces together. But you take off your shoes and you put them at the door. And I preached in socks and, and folks came and they sat on the floor and, and the men were on the right and the women were on the left. and it was, just the, it was just the culture. It was how they did it. There at the door, you would leave your sandals and they took off their sandals, and, uh, and, uh, but, they, but, but they did not wash their feet. Those disciples did not wash their feet. And let's just get real here. One scholar reminds us that it involved washing off not just dust and mud, but also the remains of human excrement, which was tipped out of houses into the streets, and animal waste, which was left on the country roads and town streets. This task of hospitality to honor guests was normally assigned to slaves or servants of low status, so much so that foot washing was virtually synonymous with slavery. And so with that, the disciples enter the room, and they recline around the table. And they're and, and please understand, uh, it's not a sort of Leonardo da Vinci long table, and everybody's on one side of the table so they can get into the picture. It's not it at all. What they they're. they're The table is maybe I don't know 18 inches off the floor, and so so you're leaning on an elbow. You're not sitting in a chair. You're leaning, and you might have kind of a cot or a mat, and your feet would extend out. So you've got you've got kind of a a table, sort of a a fan of of uh, leaning, and you're you're leaning on an elbow, and you're taking, and you're drinking, and you're visiting, and sharing. That's what's going on here. That's the visual. I want you to see, and you're in close quarters, and it's as if all 12 were waiting for the slave to show up and wash feet, and there's no slave, and where's the slave, right? I mean, we've been into a restaurant. Where's the waiter? Where's my water? Where's the slave? Why are, how come my feet aren't washed? What kind of a place is this? What did Jesus do? Someone needs to, so, well, someone needs to do this, but I'm not going to do this, I'm not going to, there's this awkward, everybody knows what needs to be done, but I'm not going to volunteer. I'm not doing that. You say, Bolting House, you're reading into that. I am not. If you cross-reference this with Luke chapter 22, verse 24, which tells of what else happened in the upper room. There arose a dispute among them as to who was the greatest. That word dispute means love of strife. Think about it, within 24 hours of the cross, supper was served to 12 self-promoting mouths and their 24 filthy feet. In his book, Life Together, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote that when people come together, there's almost this invisible, unconscious life and death contest. We meet someone and what do we do? We size them up almost without thinking. We look for some strategic advantage, some angle by which we might assume control over that person. How can I figure out who that person is so that I can figure out where I am in more or less the pecking order and then maybe negotiate what I can get or want from them? Where do you work? Where did you go to school? Who's your family? In this room, there are gifted people and more gifted people and there are strong people and stronger people and educated and more educated and popular and more popular and both types try to size each other up and compare themselves and justify themselves and it occurs in the most polite way. And it happened in the Gospels, Mark chapter 10, the apostles James and John. John, who gave us the Gospel of John. John and his brother James came to Jesus in Mark 10 and said, I mean rather boldly, Lord, we want you to do whatever it is we ask. Jesus said, well, what do you want? And they proceed to ask Jesus to grant them Exceeding privileges and glory, one on his right and the other on his left. I'm reminded of the poet. I I am like James and John. Lord, I size other people in terms of what they can do for me, how they can further my program. Feed my ego, satisfy my needs, give me a strategic advantage. I exploit people, presumably for your sake, but really for my own sake. Lord, I turn to you to get the inside track and obtain special favors. Your direction for my schemes, your power for my projects, your sanction for my ambitions, your blank checks for whatever I want. Lord, I am like James and John. And suddenly this awkwardness turned to silence as one of them felt the cool water splashing from the pitcher to the basin. Well, it's about time. He looks down, and it is Jesus. Hmm. He laid aside his outer garments, verse 4, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist, Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. It got really quiet. You know, John's the only gospel writer to include this. Others, Matthew, Mark, Luke, talk about communion. Without this, we would not have known it. But do you notice his crisp eyewitness detail? Jesus got up. Jesus took off his outer clothing. Jesus wrapped a towel. What a what detail? But John's not just giving us eyewitness detail. John is giving us theology. John is telling us what a picture of the incarnation. Jesus disrobes his heavenly glory and he puts on human flesh. And then he did what no Hebrew servant would be asked to do. He stooped to wash the filthy mud caked feet of his friends as if John himself is saying, I can't let this go unreported. And that's what makes this so extraordinary. What makes this so extraordinary is that there is no parallel in ancient literature for a person of superior status to voluntarily wash the feet of someone of inferior status. And yet that's what we read here. What's Jesus doing? He's assaulting the traditional power order of the world. He is disrupting categories of honor and shame. Only he goes further because Jesus is not just an honored teacher performing a shameful act for a student. He is the exalted, sovereign, divine son of God, the Lord over the cosmos, who has taken on the role of a slave. This is who we just sang to earlier. This is what makes verse two so meaningful. It says, the devil had put it into the heart of Judas to betray him. Wow. John clearly says this before the washing takes place. So that we, the reader, would know that Jesus washed all of their feet. Think about it. Who is here in the upper room? Everybody. Everyone. Jesus, the Holy One. The devil, the evil one. God the Father. In chapter 14, it's going to be the same location. The Holy Spirit will be taught of. The most loyal disciples, the one who betrayed him, everyone's up there. And know this, know this, church family. When Judas betrayed Jesus, he did so with clean feet. That's how much Christ loves. And then there's Peter. (laughs) Verse six. What are you doing, Lord? (laughs) What are you doing? Jesus says, you don't understand now, but you will. Is that a picture of our life in Christ or what? Trust now, understand later. And Jesus did not feel obligated to explain himself to Peter's satisfaction, why he was doing what he was doing. Just trust me, Peter. Isaiah 55.8 says, God's ways are not our ways. And, and could you really respect a God you could figure out? Peter says, you never washed my feet. What did he mean by that? What did he mean by that? I wonder. Uh, one option is, hey, my kind of king doesn't do feet. Why would he say that? Well, because in Peter's mind, it's easier to, to be God than love God. It's easier to control people than love people. And it's easier to own life than love life. And sadly, sadly, much Leadership, Christian leadership, mind you, is performed by people who do not know how to develop the healthy relationships that we just heard in our faith story. And therefore, they just default to power and control. My kind of king doesn't do feet. That may be what he meant. But I wonder if he meant this. I wonder if he meant this. Lord, you'll never wash my feet. Do you know where my feet have been? Do you know how filthy they are? One author wrote, Oh Lord, you kneel before me. You you hold my naked feet in your hands and you look up at me and you smile. And like Peter, I protest resisting the love you offer. I say, I say, Lord, you don't really know me. You don't know my dark feelings. You don't know my pride. You don't know my lust. You don't know my greed. I'm not good enough to belong to you. And as Christ did with Peter, he looks at us and he says, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. Meaning, if I don't forgive you, you can't follow me. You need me. I'm your only hope. You must let me love you. You must let me cleanse you. You must let me sanctify you. And then Peter says in verse 9, well, then wash my hands and feet. And Peter says, uh, Jesus says, Peter, shh. Okay, just, just your feet. Just give me your feet, and you'll be clean. Again, is this not our life in Christ? Parts of us are clean. Parts of us are growing and maturing. Parts of us are making progress in holiness. Other parts, not so much. Jesus says, I want those other parts. I know what's clean and I know what's not in you. Just your feet and you'll be clean. But not all of you are clean, Jesus says. And he's talking about Judas. For he knew who was to betray him. Verse 11. Listen, just because Christ washes your feet doesn't mean you are changed. Is that not what we read here about Judas? Just because he washes your feet doesn't make you changed. You need more than clean feet to follow Jesus, you need a clean heart. You need a clean heart. And verse 12 says, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he, he said, did you realize what I've done for you here? Do you realize this? See, you know, these, 12 were, these 12 were arguing about their greatness, and Jesus is showcasing greatness, and he interprets what he just did. He didn't let him interpret what he just did. If I washed your feet... You must wash the feet of others. Not I wash your feet, you need to wash my feet. No, rather I want you to treat others as I I have treated you. I want you to love others as I have loved you. And what is not beneath my dignity can never be beneath your dignity. And a group in which each person washes and receives washed feet, such a group there is no hierarchy. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. And this dynamic needs to remain, remain. I see that so much in our church family, and it's so humbling, and it's joyful for me to be able to see this. It needs to remain in our congregation. And why? Why must it remain? Look at verse 16. Truly I say to you, are you following here? A servant Is not greater than his master. Let's say that together on three. One, two, three. A servant is not greater than his master. One more time. One, two, three. A servant is not greater than his master. Brothers, gentlemen, I'd like to hear you say that. One, two, three. A servant is not greater than his master. Now, everybody, let's whisper it. A servant is not greater than his master. We we who have been served now live out a vocation of serving others. And it's not just some sentimental, smushy service, but a rugged service that self-sacrifices for the good of others, a service that does not demand reciprocation, a service that does not demand the worthiness of the beloved. God's loving service empowers us to love one another. And it it is a love that serves downward. It's a love that serves those beneath us. It's a love where employers serve the employed, where teachers serve the students, where physicians serve the patients. It's that kind of love. And to the degree that we follow our king in his way, then our unity, his community, his kingdom, his church will, will flourish. I've mentioned Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a pastor in Nazi Germany and was martyred. I mean, I was challenged by his words here. The church does not need brilliant personalities, but faithful servants of Jesus Christ authority from on high comes to the child of God who wraps herself in a grimy servant's towel, taking no power for self, but leveraging it all for the good of others. God did not give us brothers and sisters in his kingdom family for us to dominate them. Jesus' dominion is not heavy-handed. His is a dominion of service, deference, and humility. And to the degree we embody this and imitate this and live this out, we will enjoy as we have been and are enjoying life in Christ together. Hear me, beloved. The primary obstacle to the advance of the gospel is not out there in the world. It's not. well, frankly, and I love you, it's within. The primary obstacle is when brothers and sisters and pastors enter a room and sit at a table and wait for somebody else to wash their filthy feet. And so Jesus says in verse 17, if you know these things, blessed are you, Are you if you what? What? Memorize it? Outline it? Read it aloud? Blessed are you if you what? What's it say? Do it. Blessed are you if you do them. So then, in a very short amount of time, you are going to be in a setting, we are going to be in a setting For some of us, it'll be a classroom. Others of us, it'll be a boardroom. It may be a large group, it may be a small group. And you're in that room, and it's gonna dawn on you that you are the most powerful person in the room. You have the most authority of anybody else in the room. You have the power to help, you have the power to hurt, you have the power to act in a way that will affect someone else's future. In a very short amount of time, you will be in that setting. What will you do with that power? John 13 teaches us why God loans us power, loans us power. The power that you have is on loan to you from on high. How will you steward it? And Jesus shows us, Jesus says, leverage your power out of love for the sake of others. Leverage your power out of love for the sake of others. And and some of you may be thinking, well, that may work in, you know, pastor land, but it doesn't work in my world. Listen to me. Listen to me. I know, I know. The, the The world says the point of power is to get power and keep it and protect it and guard it and hoard it and not share it. But listen to me. Power will eventually leave you. Power will eventually be taken from you. And when we dig in to protect power with power, you talk about anxiety. The most anxiety-driven activity is the protection of power. Clinging to power is exhausting and futile. I'm mindful of uh, the Venezuelan former president, Hugo Chavez, his last words, his last words before he stepped into eternity. I don't want to die. Please don't let me die. And then he did. The wisest thing that we can do with the power that's on loan from God to us is to leverage it out of love for the good of others. So what are you going to do back to tomorrow in that classroom, in that conference room, in your team, with your family, if you're a Christian, you're asking yourself, "How can I leverage this out of love for the good of others? How can I leverage this out of love for the good of others? Can you imagine a, you imagine a congregation committed with the mindset that we're going to leverage what's on loan from God? Can you imagine a people who, out of love, are committed to leveraging love for others? I mean who could marginalize that? Who could ignore that? A servant is not greater than his master. And when we don't, then we've decided that we're greater than the master. And who here would say that? No, we're gonna make a commitment, aren't we? That when we enter a room and it becomes clear to us that we're, we're the most powerful person in the room, we're gonna, look to shed, we're gonna look to leverage that because we're not greater than our king. And we're gonna look for opportunities out of love so that we can flourish, so that we can flourish just like Jesus. Ruth Harms Calkins wrote one of my favorite poems on this chapter. You know, Lord, how I serve with great emotional fervor in the limelight. You know how eagerly I speak for you at a woman's club. You know how I effervesce when I promote a fellowship group. You know my genuine enthusiasm at a Bible study. But how would I react, I wonder, if you pointed to a basin of water and asked me to wash the calloused feet of a bent and wrinkled old woman day after day, month after month, in a room where nobody saw and nobody knew. Amen.